From the passage that was read uh, to us uh, earlier, it comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I would just like to uh, bring you back to that uh, part uh, of the New Testament. It's a very important passage, one of the most important in the entire, uh, in the entire Bible. But before we come to look at it, I would just like to point out how Paul begins this letter. He says, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. To all the saints. Now, saints in Paul's, uh, uh, in Paul's understanding were simply Christians. They were people who are, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we today tend to associate, we think of a saint as an outstanding Christian, but for Paul, an ordinary Christian was a saint. The word saint simply means someone who is dedicated to the service of God. Now what Paul is saying here, he said, that he wrote this letter to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Literally, it's in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now Paul is saying that uh, the church was not only in Philippi, the church was also in Christ Jesus. Now, someone will ask me, uh, perhaps tomorrow, uh, where, what I was doing today, and I would say, I was at St. Peter's. And they will say, where is St. Peter's? And I will say, it's in Dundee. But uh, I think Paul would say more than that. He would say that the saints of the Christians in St. Peter's are not only in Dundee, they're in Christ. And I think that's the important point that uh, Paul is making in this letter. He is uh, helping us to realize that not only the church in Philippi, but the church anywhere is not only in a geographical location, but is spiritually situated in Christ. And it's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to think that uh, the church is located in where we are. But the church is much broader than that. All those who are in Christ, all those who believe in him, are in the church of God. And so there is a sense in which, as Christians, we have a dual identity. I mean, the Philippians were Philippians, and they were very proud of the fact that they lived in one of the, one of the most uh, loyal cities of the empire. Uh, they were Philippians, but they were also Christians. And uh, there's a sense in which we also have a dual identity or dual citizenship. We are citizens of uh, this country or of some other country if you're visiting from abroad. We have a passport, but uh, we are also in Christ. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in him. Some of you know Bob Ackroyd, who's an American. He's the assistant minister in our church in Edinburgh and Bacloon Gray Friars. And uh, he has been living in this country now for more than 10 years, a good bit more than 10 years. So he's been able to get, in addition to his American passport, a British passport. So he can uh, take the shortcut in immigration when he's going to the States and when he's coming back uh, to this country. Uh, so he's got dual citizenship, and perhaps some of you here may have dual citizenship. But all Christians have dual citizenship. We are citizens here on earth. We are citizens of the city, of the country, 
in which we live, and we are to live, we are to express our citizenship in a Christian way. We are called to be the light of the world, we're called to be the salt of the earth, but we are also in Christ, and that is our primary identity. And first of all, we are in Him. And it's more important to be in Christ than to be a Scot or to be English or to be British or to be American or be whatever. Your, our, 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 our core identity as the people of God is that we are in Christ. <clears throat> so much so that Paul says in the, the verse 21 of this chapter, for me to live is Christ. So that living, everyday living for Paul was an experience of Christ. Now, what did he mean by this phrase? Well, I think the answer to that question is found in the passage that was read to us in Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 uh, to 11. Uh, what Paul uh, tells us there is he expresses what the way Jesus thought, the way, the mindset, if you like, of Jesus your attitude, he says in verse 5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to a, from verse 6 to verse 11 to, in, in a kind of poetic way, to tell us the story of Jesus. We have there the story of Jesus from his, from his pre-existence, from his incarnation, from his birth, uh, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, to his ascension, and to his coming again. We have in these uh, remarkable verses uh, a wonderful summary of what we might call the narrative of Jesus. And what Paul says, that if we are to live in Christ, then that is the template that he has given to us. That is the model that he lays before us. Jesus, of course, uh, did things for us as our Savior which we ourselves cannot do and he does not want us to do. But the lifestyle that he adopted, the way in which he, he, he made himself nothing and he took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness and been found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says that is the attitude that all of us, that is the mindset that we should seek to have as Christians. And that is the mindset that we should ask the Lord Jesus Christ to reproduce in us so that those who do not know anything about Jesus, those who don't come to church, those who don't have a Bible, can see Jesus in you and see Jesus in me. Let the attitude that was in him, he says, be in you. Now, although... Paul tells us that although Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that is, something to be held onto at all costs. He chose the path of self-denial. And during his ministry on earth, although he was, continued to be God, he did not use his divine attributes, he did not use his divine powers for his own ends. He lived as a human being. Uh, he he got thirsty uh, when he was out walking in the sun. He got hungry. Uh, after a few hours, uh, uh, after a meal, uh, we read that uh, he grew weary with his journey. He lived a genuinely human life. 
It, it, he did not use these, these divine attributes, these divine powers that uh, God had given to him. He tell, uh, Paul tells us that he, 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 he did not grasp at these things. He was willing to suspend temporarily his use of these attributes in order that he might live a genuinely human life. And in this way, he was very different from Adam. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Uh, Adam wished to be like God. That was his problem. That was why he and Eve were cast out of the garden, because they wanted to be like God. They sought to grasp equality with God. You shall be as gods, uh, the serpent told them. Now, Jesus had a totally different attitude. He did not grasp at equality with God. He was willing to suspend his divine attributes in order that he might become a genuine human being. He poured the whole of his undiminished divine nature into a new state. When he became a God-man, when he became God incarnate, he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, in verse, uh, we read in verse 7. As one paraphrase says, he was a servant in form and a man indeed. We read also here that he emptied himself. He took the very nature of a servant. The allusion there is to the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Uh, we, there, there are four servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah, and the best known of these is in Isaiah 53, when we're properly at the end of chapter 52, uh, right through to the end of chapter 53. And we read there in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that the servant of the Lord poured out his life, poured out his soul unto death. And Paul is underlining the same point here in, in, in verse 8 of Philippians 2, when he tells us, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus not only identified with us in life. He identified with us in death. Even death on a cross. Being in very nature God, Jesus was immortal, is immortal. As the eternal Son of God, he was beyond the power of death. But he voluntarily subjected his immortality to death and in this way humbled himself. He held nothing back in order that he might become our servant and the servant of the Lord. <clears throat> now, when Jesus lived, he lived as our representative. Paul puts it, writing to the Romans, that Jesus was the second Adam. He came to live out the life that the first Adam failed to live. He came as our representative, just as Adam was our representative. When Adam fell, the whole of humanity fell in him. And today, Jesus is the second Adam. He represents us before God. He lived a life of perfect and unbroken communion with God on our behalf. And so he brings his, his life and his atoning death, and he presents them to God, and he says, that covers all who trust and all who believe in me. He is one of us. 
but yet he is without sin. Therefore, he can offer to God what we cannot offer. He can offer a sinless life, a perfect obedience. And he does that on behalf of all who trust in him. And that's why when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God accepts us. God anticipates the day of judgment. Paul calls that justification, which is a legal term meaning acquittal. And what Paul is saying is, is, is that God anticipates the day of judgment when he will acquit all who believe in Jesus, and he does it now. And you don't need to wait until the day of judgment because Jesus has presented his perfect life in his atoning death on your behalf and on my behalf. A few months ago, Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of this country, signed the Lisbon Treaty. And when he signed that treaty, all of us who are British citizens were committed to it. Whether we like the treaty or not, we are committed. We must live as British citizens under, in, within the terms of that treaty because the Prime Minister was our representative and he committed us. And Jesus, as the second Adam, is our representative and he has committed us. And it is through his perfect life and through his atoning death and through his risen power that you and I can tonight confess him as Lord and praise him and bless him. So Jesus is our representative. And that's one of the things we remember when we come to the Lord's Supper. Jesus is our representative. What he did, he did on our behalf. <clears throat> But Jesus is more than our representative. Jesus is also our substitute. His death was even death on a cross, Paul says. The word even brings out the point that uh, crucifixion was, was a horrendous death. We have domesticated the cross. And uh, there's a sense in which we, give, we glory in the, in, in, in the cross and in the death of Christ. But that ought not to, 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 to allow us to forget that it was a horrendous, a awful a, a, a form of execution. He died that merciless death on the cross. Now, Paul does not spell out in this particular passage a exactly that Jesus was our representative. He here is writing in the succinct language of poetry rather than an itemized treatise. If you read his letter to the Galatians and his letter to the Romans, he is much more explicit there and he tells us that Jesus bore our sin. Writing to the Galatians, Paul quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And you remember, we read in the Gospels that Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The servant of Isaiah poured out his soul to death. Christ redeemed us, says Paul to the Galatians, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so tonight... When we receive the bread and receive the wine, we give thanks to Jesus for being our substitute. We give thanks that he bore our guilt that was imputed to him 
We give thanks that our, the punishment that we deserve was transferred to him. And Paul, writing to the Galatians and writing to the Romans, uses the imagery of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament when a pious Israelite would lay his or her hand upon the offering as a symbol of the transferring, their, their, their guilt was being transferred to the, victor, to the sacrificial victim. Of course, that was a picture. It was a teaching model of what Jesus was going to do and what we now know Jesus has done. Jesus died, bearing in his own body, bearing in his own soul, the judgment due to us. And he's done this on behalf of all those who believe in him, millions and millions and millions, billions of people. And the judgment that was due to all of them was poured out into his soul. And it was because he was not only human but also divine that he was able to absorb that so that there is nothing left. The judgment has been completely taken away. The, 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 the charge of the of, of, of the handwriting that was against us, Paul says to, 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 the, to the Colossians. He's wiped clean. You know how uh, in, in, in a university or in a schoolroom, sometimes the teacher or the professor has got a whiteboard and they've got a marker and they're writing uh, various things and then they take a wet cloth and they, they rub it out. Paul says that's what God has done with your guilt and my guilt. He's, he's blotted it out. It's removed. It's taken away. The imagery there was taken from the receipt, the form of receipt in the, in, or the IOU in the ancient world. They didn't have paper. They just had papyrus. Papyrus was very expensive, and so you used it again and again. And if you borrowed money, you were given an IOU and you signed it. But when you paid back the money, you took out the IOU, papyrus IOU in your pocket, and you asked the person who had, the, 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 who had given you the money to wipe it clean, and he would take a wet sponge and he would wipe it clean. And that's what Paul says Jesus has done for us. He has wiped our guilt clean because he is not only our representative, he is also our substitute. And so tonight we worship Jesus as Lord. We worship him as the one who is our representative and as our substitute who died for us upon the cross of Calvary and who, as Paul says here, is exalted now to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we come tonight to the communion service, in effect, we are being asked to bow the knee before him. In effect, we are confessing him as Lord. And so this service is a service not only of communion, it's a service of commitment and recommitment. Jesus is Lord. Let us tonight, as we prepare to come to his table, fall on our knees before him. And let us also, when we leave this service and go back out into the world, confess him confess to others that he indeed is Lord. Uh, chapter 22 at verse 7, which is uh, one of the 
four passages of Scripture which record the institution of the Lord's Supper. Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's on page 1067 in my Bible. It may be different, slightly different in the edition in the pews or the chairs. Uh, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom or kingship of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide, it among yourself, uh, take and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we always read one of the biblical accounts in which the Lord's Supper, of the institution of the Lord's Supper, because it is the Lord's Supper, and it's not, it's not, our supper. It's, it's, it's different from a, another meal. It's something which is different. It's something which uh, is the Lord's. It belongs to him. And we use his words uh, when we consecrate the bread and consecrate the, the, the wine because whoever may be officiating is, is, is really standing in for Jesus. And it is his words that count. And that's why I've read that passage. Now, Jesus uh, uh, tells us in the account that Paul gives us, in, uh, which we not normally read at communion time, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us that uh, uh, Jesus added the words, do this in remembrance of me. And he did that not only with reference to the bread, but also with reference to the wine. And so, the Lord's Supper has been given to us to help us to remember Jesus. Now, that is the purpose of the Lord's Supper, to help us to remember him. Therefore, before receiving from him the bread and the wine, and we do re you may receive it from a person sitting beside you or from an elder, but you're really receiving it from Jesus. When you receive the bread and the wine from him, we are encouraged to prepare our before doing so, we are encouraged to prepare our hearts by searching our motives and our behavior. Now, 
Jesus is giving us this command. He said, he said, you know, do this in remembrance of me to help you to remember me. So I suggest that, therefore, it's helpful as we prepare to uh, take communion just to stop. You know how the mind is constantly whirring. Just stop and pause and make space. Envisage the scene that we've read. Envisage the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room. It was carefully prepared by Peter and John. They were looking, Jesus told them to look for a man carrying a jar. Why did Jesus say that? Well, most people think that, uh, that Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him and he didn't. He wanted to celebrate the Lord's Supper quietly and secretly and confidentially. He didn't want to be interrupted by a posse coming from the Pharisees and from the scribes and from the high priests. And so he said, he didn't tell them where to go. He said, when you go into town, you'll see a man carrying a jar. Now, what was strange about that? Well, there's something very strange about a man carrying a jar or a pitcher because women carried pitchers. Men carried wineskins or, 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 you know, they, they had receptacles for water or for wine in, in a, in a well, we would like a plastic bag today. And that's what a man carried. Woman carried a pitcher or a jar, but he was a man carrying a jar. That was a sign. There's a sense in which it's almost like an underground movement. Uh, Jesus was anxious to celebrate this uh, with, his, with his disciples without interruption uh, from his enemies. He was afraid that perhaps that Judas might pass the location on to the religious authorities. And uh, this man led them to a house, and many people believe it was the home of John Mark. Uh, certainly, uh, John Mark's home became a center for the church uh, after uh, the day of Pentecost. In Jerusalem, the local residents had an obligation to provide a room for pilgrims who came from outside the city, uh, because most people prefer to celebrate the, 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 the Passover in the city. And so everyone had an obligation to make their guest room available to pilgrims who might ask. And in return, they were given the skin of the lamb, uh, which was uh, slain and prepared uh, uh, for the meal. So we need just to stop, I think, and, and just focus on uh, this event. Imagine just for a few moments that we're in the room, and that we're observing what is happening. The first thing that we will notice is that the table is not like this. The table's away down here. There are no chairs, because Jesus and his disciples are reclining on a couch, or on couches. That was the way that people ate. Only the slaves and the poor sat at table, as we do, in the culture of Jesus. But the rabbis, interestingly, had said that at the Passover, even the poor and the slaves had the right to recline. They had the privilege of reclining and coming to the Passover. And on that low table, we would see a roasted lamb, a loaf of bread, and some goblets of wine. 
The original Lord's Supper was a real meal. Today, it is a symbolic meal. But it was part of a real meal. And Jesus broke the bread before the meal, and he distributed the, poured out the wine after the meal. And it's important for us, I think, to realize that, that we today have got a symbolic representation of who took place. So I would suggest that having for a few moments, you know, thought of what it might be to be observers of the scene, let's try to think of what it might have meant to be a disciple. Imagine that you were one of the disciples there reclining around the table with Jesus. As you recall the scene and enter into it as a disciple, let's ask God tonight to bridge the gap of time, of space, of culture, so that the Holy Spirit may actualize in our midst here what happened then. And the Holy Spirit can do that so that we can be as close to Jesus tonight as the first disciples were on that occasion. Jesus has promised to be present with us by his Holy Spirit. And he invites us simply to reflect on that and to pause and to think. The disciples were participating in this meal in relation to the Exodus, the memorial of the Exodus from Egypt, that great deliverance. But Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to replace the Passover. And through it, we look back to his death on Calvary for us. So tonight, let's stop, let's focus, let's imagine, but above all, let's commit. When we come to the Lord's table, we come not as spectators. It's not a spectacle. It's a meal. It's something in which we participate, in which we recommit us ourselves to Jesus. Now, the remarkable thing about the Lord's Supper is that Jesus is recommitting himself to you and to me. When Jesus, uh, before he celebrated, the, 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 before he broke the bread and he, 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 he poured out the wine, he made a vow. He, made, he renewed his commitment to the, to, the, to the cause of the salvation of his people. He tells us that, uh, that uh, he, is, he, does, he does that after, um, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, but I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he says that not only once, but twice. He said, you know, this was a, he was renewing his commitment to go all the way to Calvary. He said, this is my last Passover. I'm going to see it fulfilled. I'm going to see its symbolism realized. And he is committing himself in this event. And as we tonight remember his death, he is reminding us of that renewal of his commitment. And he commits himself to us. And he invites you and he invites me to commit ourselves, to recommit ourselves to him. So the Lord's Supper is a very important, a vitally important 
a sacrament, a symbol in the life of the Church of God. And it is the Lord's Supper. It's not the Supper of St. Peter's. It's not the Supper of the Free Church of Scotland or of any other church. It's the Lord's Supper. And so we invite tonight all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who trust in him to receive the bread, to partake of the wine as tokens and symbols of the love of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And may your prayer be and may my prayer be that that love which was demonstrated in Calvary and which is symbolized in the broken bread and in the poured out wine might by the Holy Spirit be poured out afresh into our hearts so that our hearts may be filled overflowing with a sense of that love, with a sense of amazement that God in heaven should love us as sinners. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we continue in your presence, we come to thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the way in which you have instituted it and uh, use it to build up your people, to strengthen your church, and to glorify your name. And we pray, O oh Lord, that tonight as we come into uh, around the table to receive the bread and the wine, we thank you that, that may we become freshly aware that you are renewing your covenant with us, that you're renewing your commitment to us. And grant, O oh God, that we may rejoice in that because you are faithful and we can trust you. But help us, Lord, to renew our commitment to you so that this may be not something that simply we do because it is, is here to be done. But grant, O oh God, that you will challenge us to the very core of our being so that we may surrender ourselves totally and utterly. And just as Jesus recommitted himself to his destiny for us, when he instituted this supper, may we, as we receive it, recommit ourselves to that destiny that he has for us. We ask this praying that as we take the bread that you will bless it and that you will use it as the token of the broken body of the Lord. And as we pour out the wine and as we receive it, as we drink it, grant that you will bless it so that it may indeed symbolize your love to us and your grace which is ever available to us. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen. In the book of Psalms, and uh, words which are found near the end of that long, long psalm. Psalm 89. And I would like to draw your attention particularly to the word in, words in verse 47. Remember how fleeting is my life. And again in verse 50, remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. Now, as we came to the Lord's table, we came because he asked us to remember him. And as we leave the Lord's table, we have the privilege of asking him to remember us. To use the words of this psalm or some other appropriate passage of Scripture to ask him to remember us. Why do we do that? 
We do it because we need him. We need him, and without him, we cannot survive in the Christian life. Our constant need is for the Lord Jesus to remember us. This was illustrated very clearly in the psalm. To be a God follower in the Old Testament was never easy, and perhaps at no time was it more difficult than after the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of King Jehoiakim and many of the people to Babylon. And that seems to be the background of this psalm. And this, the latter part of the psalm is a lament at the defeat and disappearance of the last king of the Davidic dynasty. And this created for the psalmist and for many others a crisis of faith. He recalls in verses 19 to 37, God's covenant with David, a covenant that was steadfast and sure, a covenant that could not be broken. And then in verse 38, he utters that painful word, but. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one, that is with David's successor. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. In this crisis, the psalmist asks the Lord to remember him. He is perplexed, but he comes to the Lord in his perplexity. There was a gap in his understanding between God's promise and the present, re and the, and the present reality. And this and other psalms of lament teach us that there is a place in the worship of God to bring our doubts to God and to hand them over to him. The psalmist doesn't hide his doubt. He brings it to God. He says in the words of the man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But this problem, this difficulty for the psalmist was not simply an intellectual one, it was an existential one. Not only was he filled with perplexity, he was filled in his soul with agony. There was a deep sense of angst and hurt in, the mid, in, in, in his soul. It was a real crisis of living, not a theoretical one. And today, being a follower of Jesus in a rebellious world is often not for his people an easy story with a happy ending. There are many of God's people around the world tonight who are being persecuted for their faith. And they are crying out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? And we, when we utter these words in the psalm, pray for them. We say this psalm, we sing this psalm, we pray this psalm on their behalf. God has given us in the psalms laments which we ought to use. And he wants us to use them meaningfully. But the psalmist not only comes to God in his perplexity and in his agony, but also in his fidelity. His agony at the end of Psalm 89 must be seen alongside his fidelity at the beginning in which he worships the Lord with all his heart. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare your love stands firm forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. And so although he was facing this crisis, a real crisis of doubt, a crisis 
uh, as to whether there was a future for the people of God. Nevertheless, he was able to praise God in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his, of, of, of his pain, in the midst of his, of, of, of his anxiety. He praises God. He stresses God's faithfulness. The word faithfulness with reference to God occurs seven times in this psalm. And it's the only psalm, apart from Psalm 119, where I think it occurs in a long psalm three times, this word faithfulness is repeated seven times. And all the other psalms, apart from Psalm 119, is only once. And he said, God is faithful. God can be trusted. God can be relied upon, even although it appears, it appears that his work is destroyed. God is faithful. And so he's able to affirm the faithfulness of God. And it's significant that in the Psalms which immediately follow this in the Psalter, there is a strong emphasis upon the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. So we have the privilege of asking God to remember us. We have the privilege because God has made a covenant with us. And we have the right to follow in the footsteps of the psalmists and hold God to account. Sometimes the psalmists pray in ways which we find difficult because we've dumbed down our prayers. But the psalmist lays hold upon the promises of God and says, God, these are your promises. Why are things the way they are when you have promised that they would be otherwise? And so the crisis of the psalmist becomes an occasion for his faith to rise to the occasion, to bring his doubt, to bring his perplexity, to bring his agony into the presence of God and to affirm that God would not let him down. God is committed to us. And for that reason, we have the privilege of asking him to remember us. So whatever you may face this week, whatever you may face in the future, ask God to remember you. Ask God to go with you. Ask the Christ who committed himself and you to his people on the eve of his death. Ask him to renew that commitment to you tonight as you go and be, to be his witness, to be his servant, to be his ambassador in the world in which we live. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and God, as we come before you, we come to pray that you will enable us to how hold on to your promises as the psalmist did, and to pray that even when we find ourselves in a crisis, when we find ourselves in a deep hole as he did, may we come to turn to you and hand over to you our doubts, our perplexities, our anxieties. Grant, O oh Lord, that you will enable us to know that although there are many things we cannot understand, that nevertheless you are faithful and you will not let us down, that ultimately you are sovereign and that you can be relied upon totally and your grace is sufficient for us. Although it may manifest itself in ways which sometimes surprise us and sometimes, frankly, we don't like, but we thank you that your grace is sure and that it is sufficient 
for our crisis, whatever that crisis may be. So help us tonight to plead with you, to pray that you will remember us as we go forth from this service. We thank you for the assurance that you will because you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Grant, O Lord, that we may indeed leave your house this evening rejoicing that the Lord Jesus Christ goes before us. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.